to 1 Peter, actually 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We started a series of messages um, actually on Mother's Day from this passage. Then we went back and finished up chapter 2. And now we're into chapter 3, a submitting family in the Lord Jesus Christ. So please bear that in mind as we Look at the scripture this morning, and I want to read again the first seven verses, and we're going to focus on um, a word to believing wives in the first six verses, and then in verse seven, a word to believing husbands. So let's read this passage together. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, and do not let your adornment be merely outward arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands, likewise. Verse 1 begins, wives, likewise. Verse 7, husbands, likewise. Dwell with them uh, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessels, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Tremendous passage of Scripture, one that is very misunderstood in our culture today, even among believers. So we're going to trust the Spirit of God to give us illumination to what Peter wrote 2,000 years ago. Let's pray. Father, where we are ignorant, teach us. Where we are sinful, forgive us. And where we are weak, We pray that you would make us strong through the Spirit of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, you know, there are times that uh, I quote from the Wall Street Journal, the greatest newspaper in America. And I have two articles written over a period of about three months. Both of them have to do with marriage. And the first one uh, was uh, November the 9th of last year, and it's entitled Moving In But Not Moving Up. Unmarried Face a Wealth Gap. And this is about couples that live together. A walk down the aisle can be a route to a greater wealth and prosperity for couples in the United States. Married people have higher net worths worths, and are more likely to be homeowners than the unmarried counterparts their age uh, are. The mystery, though, is why cohabitating but unmarried couples struggle to build wealth in the same manner. As of 2019... The median net worth for cohabitating couples aged 25 to 34 was $17,000, a quarter that of the $68,000, same age, 
for married couples of the same age. Over the same period of time, the share of adults age 18 to 44 living with the partners grew to 59%. More people live together today than are married. So, people, Americans like money. And here's a reason to be married. It's not the only reason. But economics always factors into decisions that are made. So I would say to you young uh, couples this morning, the best way to please the Lord, we'll see that here in this passage, and also to also build wealth for yourselves and for your children is to get married. The second article is, was in February of this year, February the 5th of this year. Uh, too risky to wed in your 20s? Not if you avoid cohabiting first. And this is an article about divorce and people that separate once they cohabitate. The majority of the article begins talking about women waiting to about 30 or so to uh, either uh, be married or begin cohabitation with uh, a young man. The fact that the median age at first marriage for American women is now almost 29, and it's 30 for men, higher still among those with at least a college degree, suggests that this view is widely held. And that is, if you wait long enough, you're more mature, you can handle marriage. Well, the article kind of Shoots that in the old foot. When it comes to divorce, the researchers generally backed up the belief that it's best to wait until about 30 to tie the knot. But University of Utah found that women who got married too early, mid-20s or earlier, were more likely to break up than their peers who married close to age 30. But as we recently discovered, there's an interesting exception to the idea that waiting until 30 is best. In analyzing reports of marriage and divorce from more than 50,000 women in America, we found that there is a group of women for whom marriage before 30 is not risky. Women who married directly, first marriage, married directly without ever cohabitating prior to marriage. In fact, women who married between 22 and 30 without first living together had some of the lowest rates of divorce in America. By contrast, for the approximately 70% of women in our sample who cohabited with one or more partners prior to marriage, it was good for them to wait around 30 to marry. However, the idea that cohabitation is risky is not only surprising, but truthful. We cannot improve Marriage, I talked about this last Sunday morning. We cannot improve 
on biblical marriage. There's a lot of tweaking going on today. And we need to be careful that we don't over-tweak or we don't under-tweak. We need to just be obedient to what the Word of God teaches us. First slide. <clears throat> now, we're in a long passage that goes back to verse 11 of chapter 2 and actually, actually runs through verse 12 of chapter 3. I have verse 7, but that's where we are this morning. How do we live? How do believers live in a pagan society? How do we live in a pagan government, in a non-Christian place of employment? How do we live with an unbelieving partner? And why has the Lord left us here? Be, does he not love us? We've talked a great deal about suffering and about submission. Does the Lord not love me because I face some type of persecution almost every day? Well, that goes back to verse 12 of chapter 2. And let's look at that. That's a summary. Actually, Peter summarizes before he begins this passage. And in verse 12, it says, Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, prepare for the coming of the Lord. Now, if you're listening, say amen. amen. If you're listening, say amen. You need to remember this next bullet. The principle that Peter is teaching, and Paul in other passages as well, this principle is, sit, is this. Leading unbelievers to Christ is a greater cause than insisting on justice in human relationships. Nothing supersedes the gospel. The purpose for you and I being born again and the Lord in his grace allowing us to remain here before he calls us home is so that the gospel through us, and Peter's going to talk about that in the middle part of chapter 3, that we give a reason for the hope that lies within us. And marriage is one of those reasons. Now, uh, Kostenberger, gentleman who spoke for our 175th, I believe, uh, anniversary here at Flat Creek, uh, Andres Kostenberger, who has written a number of books, a number of commentaries. But this is a quote from him in a great book that he has written about uh, God, family, and marriage. Leading unbelievers to Christ is a greater cause than insisting on justice in human relationships. I want to preface that or, or, or follow that by saying this. When our hearts and our lives are dedicated to winning people to Christ, that's what this passage is about, winning unsaved husbands and unsaved wives to Christ. When we are focused on that, justice follows. Justice follows. 
In verse 1, Peter says, and he follows with the word, submissive. He's been talking about this since uh, verse 13 of chapter 2. And literally here, he says, the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and mutually work to raise a family according to her gifts. It's the nature to follow the husband's authority, inclined to yield to his godly leadership. That's a continuing uh, quote from Kostenberg. He is speaking here. Notice what he says, that even when some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. This is true whether you are married to a born-again believer as husband or one that is not. The principles of God don't change. Saved or unsaved. Unsaved will be judged by the word of God. And saved will be judged by the word of God. Husbands, your wife should be able to say, and this applies whether you're here this morning and unsaved or whether you're saved. Now, if you're unsaved, I implore you, this will not get you into heaven. Only Christ and his shed blood and, your, and his appropriation of that blood to your life and forgiveness of sins saves you. Not your wife and not your conduct towards your wife. But, husbands, your wife should be able to say, I delight for you to take the initiative and responsibility for the family and lead with love. That's the key. I don't flourish as your wife when you are passive and unengaged in the family. Saved husband, unsaved husband. Now here's the rub. Submission for a wife doesn't follow a husband into sin. Neither does submission for an un uh, or the lack of submission for an unsaved wife should not follow her husband even if he's a believer into sin. Submission doesn't follow a husband into sin. Submission responds by reminding the husband that you cannot yield to sinful acts or be included in them by your loving indication that I can't follow you into sin because Christ is my king. There is a greater allegiance in marriage than the love shared between husband and wife. Now, that allegiance lies in our worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Next slide. So these first six verses, Peter writes a word or words, plural, to believing wives. And context is always king. And so here we find four contextual reasons that the Scripture always transcends 
the occasion and time for the text. Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago, preacher. What does this have to do with me today? Scripture always transcends occasion and time. God is unchanging. You'll hear me say that a number of times as we go through this passage. Because he is unchanging, the church needs to be unchanging. Because the word is unchanging, and it doesn't change just because we live in 2023. If people need to be born again by confessing uh, the Lord Jesus as Lord and believing in his heart that God has raised him from the dead, if that was applicable to us 2,000 years ago, it's still applicable today, just as this work. So four things that we need to look at when we look at this passage. Verses 1 and 2, read them again. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Historically, and that we can, you can use these four, by the way, in looking at just about any text in Scripture. This is not unique to this passage. <clears throat> Historically, Peter's text applies to married women that are married to unbelieving husbands at all times. Doesn't change through the years. Submission is a godly thing to practice when we trust the Holy Spirit to win the hearts of an unsaved per, uh, husband. And the same applies to the wife in verse 7 as well. So all textual criticism begins with a historical understanding of that text. And history confirms this. Secondly, culturally, look at verses 3 and 4. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, Peter has used the word incorruptible a number of times previous to this, and he's going to use it even more as we go through the end of the epistle. A spirit that does not rust, basically. With the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious you want to know what's precious to God? A gentle and quiet spirit in the sight of God. So this is one of the longer understandings of uh, the uh, uh, occasion and time for the text. Greek philosophers rarely wrote anything about the wife's behavior. But they did counsel when they did write about how a woman should conduct herself in the home. They did counsel that she had an engaging behavior, a winsome personality, if you please. Respectful chastity. So we're looking at it from what the pagans wrote, and then now we're going to look at it from what the apostle wrote. Respectful chastity such as, and this is what the pagans wrote, 
avoiding gaudy attire, superfluous hair, and ostentatious displays of jewelry was preferred. In other words, chastity, how you engaged your behavior was more important to them than wealth and the display of wealth. Now, the Greco-Roman world was preoccupied with outward beauty. Sounds a lot like the old United States of America. Not only are we preoccupied with beauty, we're preoccupied with youth. Young and beautiful. Is there a soap opera after that? What's that called? Young and the Restless. Somebody watches soap operas. <laughs> Young and beautiful. Nobody changes. Human beings don't change. The Greco-Roman woman dyed their hair, women rather, dyed their hair purple, red, green, yellow, and blue. Does that sound familiar? All God's people said? Depending on, they dyed them, depending on the pagan festivals that they attended. Each of the gods in their pantheon had a color assigned to them, especially the goddesses. And so they would dye their hairs, go to their beauticians, their cos- um, cosmologists. Often the hair was elaborately braided And wigs, especially blonde wigs, because most of the women in the Mediterranean world were not blonde. Especially blonde wigs, wigs made of blonde hair were worn because that color hair was rare in that part of the world. And sometimes you'll watch, uh, you you may see a a movie, so I'm thinking specifically of, of Gladiator that was made about 25 years ago. Russell Crowe was in that, but uh, I don't know if you remember or not, but uh, the, the Caesar, uh, Nero, was, pre- was supposedly in, presented in that particular movie, and his hair was dyed blonde, and his sister was there as well, and her hair was blonde. It's not natural, generally, for that region of the world. Not only that, but hair would be often adorned with with jewelry made uh, like pins or combs. It would be made of ivory, gold, and pearls. The dresses were often silk, decked with rubies, emeralds, and diamonds. The jewelry was more often than not displayed in or around the head, on the neck, on the ears, and of course bracelets and so forth. It was generally on the upper portions of the body because it was more visible. And the jewelry was usually a sign of pride uh, because uh, typically only the wealthy could afford to do this. The hair was dyed. It was secured with these pins and sometimes, depending on the wealth of the woman, 
with nets of gold thread, actual gold thread. You see why Peter is saying what he's saying. Next slide. These ladies, by the way, were the original clothes horses. And this goes back, it's, it's not unique to the Greco-Roman world. The Egyptians did that. There were occasions, obviously, that the Hebrew women did this. In fact, in the Song of Solomon, which we'll see, that uh, the, uh, the bride in the Song of Solomon also took upon herself gold and silver jewelry. So we'll speak to that in just a moment. There was a Roman poet by the name of uh, Uvenel who wrote, and he was, this was satire. He said, the attendants will vote on the dressing of the hair as if the question of, of their reputation or their life were at stake. So great is the trouble she takes in quest of beauty with so many tears that uh, does she load with so many continuous stories. In other words, she stacks up her hair. Does she build on, uh, up on her, high on her head? She is as tall as uh, Andromache, who is a mythological female. In fact, her name means man-fighter. It also can be translated man-hater. And they would do this and pile the hair up in front, but then when you watch the, the woman and the women typically in that day were not very tall, so they were shorter. And then uh, Uvenal goes on to say, you would think her another person. Now, this is satire. He's making light of these uh, particular uh, pagan uh, women. So what is Peter saying here? Peter instructs the believing wives to submit with beauty that displays the inner work of the Holy Spirit which he describes in verse 4 as very precious and of great worth in God's sight. Now turn with me back to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul writes a similar thing. This is not unique to Peter. Verse 8, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. So Paul was familiar with this as well. In fact, Ephesus was one of the uh, richest cities in the Roman Empire, and he was writing this to Timothy uh, from Ephesus. But a woman learn. Excuse me, verse 10. But what is, what is proper for a woman professing godliness with good work? That a woman learn in silence with all submission. That is that phrase, okay? Now, this is talking about believing husband, believing wife. Different from what Peter is writing. And I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. It goes all the way back to creation. That's why we talked about this a number of times. That's why... Uh, Christ was submissive to his father. The husband is to be submissive to Christ. The wife, likewise, is to be submissive to Christ, because uh, Ephesians 5 says that, and to her husband. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived. 
And that has to do with the weaker vessel in in verse 7, which we'll look at. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control, with the ability to have a strong evidence of the Spirit in their character. (coughs) Solomon would write, he's writing this about his mother, by the way, about Bathsheba. And he wrote this, (coughs) Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. So we learn something about Bathsheba from this uh, verse. We learn that apparently over time the Spirit of God worked in her in such a manner that even her son could praise her. He's watching as uh, as her beauty is passing away. But he still loves her as his mother because she feared the Lord. Now, the Greeks, and the Romans for that matter, coveted such outlays, the expense. They enjoyed watching the, uh, the expense of uh, women being uh, decked out in this manner. And, of course, there were men that did a similar thing. They didn't go to the, the depths necessarily, the links rather, that the women did. But they did uh, sometimes become clothes horses as well. But understand that a woman's virtue, they understood rather, that a woman's virtue and self-control displayed a well-ordered life as her true beauty. Even the pagans recognized that. So Peter is re-emphasizing here that if you want to win an unbelieving husband, do so with your inward beauty, your incorruptible beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit. Because this is pleasing to the Lord. All of us as believers want to please the Lord. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. We want to please the Lord. And here is an example. Overtly prepared hair, cosmetics, attire, and jewels were perceived as instruments of seduction. And what Peter is basically pointing out here is that in the home, whether unbelieving, an unbelieving home or a believing home. In the home, women would not engage in this type of dress. So Peter refers to believing wives as they leave their homes to attend Christian worship. Now, this was a strange thing for this time. Usually when a man and a woman were married, the woman converted to whatever uh, pagan religion that the man followed. Now today, I'm not so sure of that. Men tend to be, at least unsaved men, tend not to care about spiritual matters. But in the Greco-Roman world of Peter and Paul, that's what we see here. If she goes to Christian worship alone, she is not to attire herself in the manner of the Greeks and the Romans. She's going without her husband. She does not want to be perceived as one that seduces another. So that's the, that's the, the context that we see here. That's the cultural 
context that we are beginning to unfold for you here. Next slide. So when you arrayed yourself in such finery, now I will say that from the study of this, the, the, uh, it was not unusual. I mean, today, you know, I know ladies spend a certain amount of time getting prepared, and that's a good thing. You wouldn't want to come to the Lord's house without taking a shower or, or whatever or shaving except for the goatee and so forth, washing your hair. And so, that's a good thing, getting prepared, getting presentable. But in the, the day that we're talking about, in this particular, it's not unusual for it to take a couple of days, maybe even longer, for a woman to get prepared for the observation of a pagan festival. And there would be speculation, and the goal of the wife in this particular passage, her single goal should not only be to win her husband to Jesus, but also to avoid drawing attention to herself. We've read it from Paul. We've read it here from Peter. Is Peter against the arranging of hair? Is he against wearing jewelry? Is he against classic or classy clothing? Absolutely not. That's not what Peter is saying. But what he is saying is that don't let the cultural preferences or the preoccupations with what you look like cause you to disregard your internal character. There is a desire to win your husband, or the, or the desire rather to win your husband should supersede everything else. Now obviously, you want to be presentable and you want to engage yourself in uh, being uh, like you ladies here at Flat Creek. Okay? Now, the bride in the Song of Solomon, and we're not going to turn there this morning, but if you want to, you can jot this down in chapter 1, Song of Solomon, verses 10 through 11. I've been here 28 years. It's the first time I've, quote, I've looked at or even linked something from the Song of Solomon. But it's every bit as inspired as First Peter. And this bride prepared herself for her husband wearing gold and silver jewelry, some of which was in her hair. Again, cultural preferences or preoccupations. Does it represent submission? Third thing. And this is verses 1 and 2. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. For in this manner in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. There's a historical context. There's a cultural context. There's also a literary or textual context. This has to do with its place in the Word of God, how we relate 1 Peter to the rest of the Bible. And since 1 Peter is an epistle, it's a letter, 
It is similar to the letters of Paul, similar to the letters of James and Jude and John, the epistles of John. It falls into that category. Now, Peter has begun a long passage all the way back in verse 11 of chapter 2. And it's writing, he's writing about submission because previous to that, he said, we're aliens and we're strangers in the world which must abstain from some sinful desires which war against the soul. So submission carries with it in the context that we understand that we are not of this world. I heard a message uh, on this passage, by the way, by uh, Alistair Begg. <laughs> and uh, the message was about 20, 25 years old. And he said he was with his wife at, uh, um, at a grocery store, and they were checking out, and he looked, and there were, there were, he said, probably two dozen magazines specifically dedicated to women and their attire, women and their uh, cosmology, and women and their all, all sorts of things. And he said that, they, that he was overwhelmed. He said he looked for something about a man and couldn't find it. So there is there's a preoccupation, and sometimes we are preoccupied with the blessing that God has given us. By the way, you all know that you can't do anything about your genes. You know that? I'm not going to get any better looking than I am today. All God's people said... <laughs> I'm not. It's genetic. I am going to grow older, hopefully. That's genetic. So sometimes we take pride in who we are. Sometimes we take pride in our outward appearance, which a lot of times is due to our genetics. In fact, most of the time is due to our genetics. That is a grace of God. A common grace of God. So, Peter is saying winning your husband, winning your wife, far more important than being culturally attuned. In fact, he's introducing the apologetic function of our faith because of our good conduct. He includes that of husbands and wives, and he says this will silence our accusers. Look at verse 15 of chapter 3. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ might be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God that you suffer for doing good than for doing evil. This carries forth all the way to our testimony and our ability to give a, uh, a word from the Lord Jesus to those that are unsaved. Sometimes our conduct, and even the ladies that are here that he's speaking to, sometimes they, their conduct would seem to be disruptive because of our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ we will be accused, and we are today, of being a subversive rebel. When we call Jesus Lord, 
That means that he disrupts the hierarchical uh, structure of society. The believing wife would understand that or should understand that. The believing husband should understand that. Next slide. So that's the literary context that we see here. The thing here is that when we call him Lord, now you will notice something. Look, look at verse 6. As Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord. That's not capital L. That is a small L. Remember that. We only call Jesus Lord with a capital L. And it means that we deny all others that title. Kings are not our capital L lords, nor queens, nor presidents, nor employers, nor masters, nor husbands, nor wives are worthy of such worship. So the Greco-Roman literature of the day ignored, for the most part, wives. And this is particularly true of any that were in the lower class of society and wives and children were considered to be in the lower class of society. But here, Peter elevates them. How do you know this is the word of God? Because it goes back and promotes the Imago Dei, the image of God. Fourth thing, biblical continuity. We've read verses 5 and 6. Speak for a moment about Sarah, and then we'll close. I'll come back and, and pick up on verse 7 next Sunday. So remember that, ladies. We're going to cover men as well. In the Old Testament, Sarah describes the particular attitude the Holy Spirit has moved Peter to scribe. She is the, as we talk about Abraham a great deal, Sarah is the prototypical example of a godly wife. Now, Sarah sinned. We see that quite often in the book of Genesis. But the author of Scripture, the Holy Spirit, maintains continuity in his teachings. This harkens all the way back to the book of Genesis. And here, Peter recalls it because it's the unity of marriage and the supremacy of the gospel over all, the, all life. So he goes back into the Old Testament. Remember now, Peter is quoting primarily from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So he admonishes the believing wife to, uh, to preserve the marriage because even mixed marriages are good. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Suffice it to say, it is not an excuse to 
to divorce your wife or your husband if they are unbelievers. Look at verse 10. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and her husband is not to divorce his wife. The word uh, part there means to desert. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, and that's what Peter's preaching about, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, if they desert, husband or wife, let him depart, her depart, that's the implication, a brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Or lead them to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuity. Paul, Peter, Sarah, Abraham. So they're writing to engage your wife with an unbelieving husband, neither states that a, an unbelieving husband's lack of saving faith is a basis for divorce. And the same can be said for the husband, the believing husband, and believing wife. Next slide. So let's summarize this. These six verses are about believing wives because they were more susceptible to gossip and abuse when they converted to the faith. Uh, look at, choose a name. Look at Chloe over there. You know, she used to worship Jupiter and now she worships someone called the Christ. And if she drew attention to herself with her attire or hair or jewelry, especially as you stepped outside the home, that was reason for gossip. And it's not an excuse for gossip, but a reason for it. If spiritual virtue is imperishable and all bodily strengths perish, let us spend less time on our bodies and more time caring for the mind and the spirit, pursuing love, God's justice, and truth. This is a quote from a commentary, Daniel Doriani, on this particular passage of Scripture. If spiritual virtue, and that's what he says, that's what Peter says, go back to 1 Peter 3, if this is, uh, if the Lord promotes an incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, if it's precious in the sight of God, then we need to spend less time on our bodies and more time caring about the mind and the spirit. So he calls and uses Sarah. Believing wives are Sarah's daughter. 
Sarah's daughter. She was known as an extremely beautiful woman. She was beautiful not only outside, but on the inside as well. We find this a couple of times in the book of Genesis. The Midrash, which is uh, quoted sections from the Torah, which are the first five books of the Old Testament. The Midrash says when she was 20, speaking of Sarah, when she was 20, she retained the beauty of a seven-year-old. And when she was 100, she was as innocent from sin as when she was a 20-year-old. Now, that's what they summarized from this. The Torah, the giving of the law, tells us two things about Sarah's life. She was beautiful, and she also had a flawless character. The implication is that she was beautiful inside and out. And so her outward beauty was made even more uh, gorgeous because of her inward beauty. And there's a portion of the Torah which reads, her face was a canvas from which emanated her inner radiance. Now, this goes back about 3,000 years, these words. Now, there's a very interesting phrase at the end of verse 6. She calls him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. And that is this. Sarah did not fear the terrors or, or... She didn't fear being submissive to Abraham. She was not fearful that he was going to take advantage of her. She was not fearful that he would ignore her. And so she calls him Lord, which literally means prince. And if you go back in the book of Genesis, you'll find that the word Sarah can also be translated princess. So Peter brings all of that forward. As I said, note that it's Lord with a capital or with a, with a small L, not capital L. She did not worship Abraham. And it certainly didn't keep Sarah from speaking her mind to Abraham. And we won't go there this morning. We can go to Genesis 18, go to Genesis 21. And Sarah gave Abraham an earful. And Abraham listened to his wife. Counter-cultural things. Now here's an interesting side of it. We'll close this. Next slide. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She is the only woman in the Bible whose age was recorded when she died. We have no other age of any woman in the Bible. There are hundreds of them, if not thousands of them. But the Holy Spirit for preservation, for continuity, recorded her age. 
Now, I'll say this as we summarize this morning. Admittedly, these verses are, they do sometimes trouble us. And sometimes they trouble godly women. And so we need to be very careful when that happens. Sometimes your husbands may take advantage or they may act sinfully or foolishly towards you. And because of that, you hesitate to trust him. So we need to understand the context that this was written, and we also need to understand that the Lord loves you, and for men, the godly example is found in verse 7. Sometimes we are persuaded by, we talked about this last week, the myth of influence whereby she wants the freedom that is so highly valued in our culture. Sometimes this freedom becomes idolatry. Now, Beg said this. I quoted this on Mother's Day, but I'm going to close with this this morning. He said, Peter is not implying the sexual inferiority of women. The submission which he calls for does not negate the spiritual equality of husband and wife. Doesn't mean a man can be more spiritual or a woman can be more spiritual. But rather, it is one of function. Every team must have a captain, every home ahead. And God said that responsibility falls to the man. The characteristic, therefore, most desirable in a good wife is that of a gentle and quiet spirit which responds with grace to the responsible decisions of her husband. Instead of being tyrannized by the evidences of the aging process and captivated by the changing fashions of the day, she is to focus on that which God prizes most and which he produces to the praise of his glory. These verses are dynamic. And we must help our wives and daughters to, re to discover the joy of bowing beneath their direction and displaying the radical implications of them in a society that is scrambling to find the identity of a real woman and a true wife. That's sad, but that's, that's, that's true. We have lost our moorings, our sextant. The sextant, of course, they used, I just finished reading two books about shipwrecked individuals and the sextants and how vitally important they were to pinpointing their location on an ocean where you have no boundaries. Our sextants have been corrupted. A society that is scrambling to find the identity of a real woman and a true wife. So I'd say this. To the woman... If you're here this morning and you're, you're saved and your husband perhaps is unsaved, the goal here is to pray. The latter part of verse 7 says, unless your prayers be hindered. What prayer is that? The praying for an unsaved husband to be saved or an unsaved wife to be saved. That's the prayer. It's not prayer in general, specific. So, as a church, we desire to pray for you.
we desire that you emulate what Peter has written here. And men, even though there is only one verse, it is chock-a-block full of our responsibility. We'll cover that next Sunday morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the beauty, the crowning jewel, if you please, of the grace of life, which is a godly marriage. I thank you for my wife, for her faithfulness, for her love, for now over 50 years, for her concern, for her direction, for her obedience, for her teaching me so many, many things that I would have never learned had it not been that Rob and I shared our life together. I thank you for my mother and how she set a godly example for our home. And I, as I look out in this congregation this morning, I thank you for the wives and the mothers that are here this morning. What a, what a tremendous calling. What a responsible opportunity to guide their children and their husbands, being, as Peter wrote, heirs of eternal life. I pray, Lord, if there's one here this morning that does not know you as Savior, I pray that you would move in their hearts and their lives to bring them to the foot of the cross where they may confess Jesus, repent of their sins, and receive him as Savior. As believers, challenge us that we with our mind and our spirit may worship you more fully. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. So we're going to sing Amazing Grace to close this morning. You want to do it a cappella? Are the guys going to, y'all going to play? All right. This will conclude our service. If you need, if what number is it, Stephanie? 3.30. If you need a hymn book, it's hymn number 3.30. We're going to sing one verse of this this morning. If the Lord's spoken to you, we want you to respond in kind. And if not, as we will close out the uh, service, there will be no closing chorus this morning. Uh, I'm going to ask Brother Willie if he would have a closing benediction this morning after we finish this. Would you stand with us? And sing?